A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Episode 274, your data platform is a product. Treat it like one. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Sean Gustafson, director of the data platform at Delivery Hero. As a quick aside, Delivery Hero has been on the data mesh journey for longer than most organizations, at least three years. So there's some uh, learnings from somebody that's kind of further along the path for you here. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Sean's point of view. Number one, it's extremely hard, but still important to try to impact your culture through things like your data platform, where you're trying to make information available to. How do you make it accessible? How do you make data ownership easier? Things like that. Number two, a key role of the data platform is that golden or easy path, showing people easy ways to accomplish what they need with data products embed best practices into the platform when possible. Number three, you need a product manager in your data platform team. It's easy-ish to build cool things in data, you know, in your data platform, but understanding and building to user needs is harder and a must. Treat your platform as a product. Number four, relatedly, isn't anything all that special about product management when it comes to the data platform. You can take what we've learned from other disciplines, especially software, and tweak it a bit for data, but it's not some crazy arcane art. Number five, focus on KPIs around what you are building and why, especially for your data platform. It's very hard to measure developer productivity, but that doesn't mean you just don't measure it. Number six, potentially controversial. Be prepared to deal with a lot of qualitative data 
when measuring success around your data platform. Surveys work far better than most people might think. Number seven, good product managers balance the short and long term. You don't want to make drastic and breaking changes to your data platform often, but that doesn't mean you can't take bigger bets and shake things up. Just balance iterative improvements and the bigger picture. You know, Scott note here, Jamak in her book and in, in lots of places talks about Thomas Kuhn and cumulative progress versus paradigm shifts. And this is kind of that same thing. You can make cumulative, you can make incremental that cumulative progress on your data platform. And you don't have to just keep doing paradigm shifts, but you also don't want to become stagnant. Number eight, in the same vein, make small bets where small bets will do, but don't be afraid to make big bets when necessary. Number nine, potentially controversial. It will be hard to iteratively change a traditional centralized focused kind of data platform to do data mesh or decentralized ownership well. You want to at least consider a fresh start when looking at your mesh platform. Number 10, tools like DVT have given a much broader group of people the ability to model their data. There are inherent problems if they don't do it well, but we still need to encourage more people to do data work so we can get them better at producing great work. Number 11, data products are a lot like APIs. There are many best practices we can take from APIs and apply them to data products and doing them well. Number 12, explaining data mesh to software engineers can be tough. I think we all know that. They probably get the concepts given most of the concepts are just software engineering reconceptualized for data. But the biggest challenge is is that they will probably see data as a second-class citizen to the underlying back-end system. So even when you're talking about all this stuff, that's still an underlying assumption that you have to break. You know, Scott note here, unfortunate, but extremely common from a lot of the conversations I have. And finally, number 13, in data incident management, such as data loss, you have to look at the prioritization, but our general historical focus how much money did we lose or something like that when it comes to incidents just doesn't make sense in data. We have to take reliability engineering practices from software and tweak them to work with data, but we can take incident management as a practice itself, essentially as is. We just have to understand that prioritization. How important is this? How quickly do we have to fix this? How big of a deal was this? We have to be do that far, far better in data. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Sean Gustafson here, who's the director of the data platform at Delivery Hero um, for their data mesh implementation. And we're going to be talking a lot about how platform plays into your overall data culture, how platform plays with, with data mesh, how do we start to look at 
data mesh through a lens of software engineering best practices. You know, uh, Jamak literally said she took all this stuff from software engineering and just recontextualized it to data. Why do we insist on relearning the same mistakes from software engineering? Um, reliability and resilience practices, especially prioritization of data incidents. You know, uh, this has been one of my big bugaboos, so I'm really excited to talk about that. And then, you know, Sean literally just said, how do we get people to care about what they should care about, right? We were talking relative to data, but I think that's a really, really important topic about how do we keep things top of mind and how do we not kind of force people to uh, focus on things they don't really, um, they don't want to, but how do we make it clear what they should be focusing on? But before we jump into that, Sean, if you don't mind uh, giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Sure. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I lead the data platform group within the, the central Delivery Hero organization. Um, so it's important to know that Delivery Hero is, is made up of a bunch of other companies around, around the world. So we have, we have uh, uh, brands in the Middle East, in South America, in Central America, in Asia, and, and across um, Central and Northern Europe. And most of these companies were bought effectively, um, and they came with their own engineering teams, their own data practices, their own, their own culture. Um, and my job um, is to build out the, the data platform that will satisfy them all. <laughs> uh, it's basically an, an impossible job, but it's also a job full of full of full of opportunity, um, where we have uh, where we we see what are the problems around the world, either locally within the local data teams, or from a global perspective about integrating all of this data and making it available for for, for central decision making. So I I come to this role um, through several other companies, um, all, all based in Germany. Um, the similar problems, um, but before that, uh, I was a, um, <laughs> a yeah, researcher um, in uh, human-computer interaction, which has nothing to do with this. But it gave me this this really um, um, deep um, feeling that I need to make things for people, and and that the people are actually what actually matters here. It's not about the data. It's not about the tech. It's about making people's job e easier and allowing them to make um, um, software for, for for people outside. Um, so I, I come from that that perspective. It's it's um, um, fed a lot by by product management um, and um, software engineering as well. I used to be a software engineer, so I, I, I hope I, I bring sort of a a, a collection of experiences uh, and apply them to the um, yeah data platform um, and data mesh concepts overall. I think data mesh actually brings a lot of those together, uh, which is why it's, a, it's such a powerful concept for me. And I kind of disagree with you about that the human-computer interaction doesn't have um, a, a role in data mesh because, you know, I, I've had Alice Parker on a couple of things. That usability, that user focus, like how people actually interact with uh, computers and, you know, things like that. We don't have a direct UI for a, for a data product. So we need to have a great user experience at the platform level to be able to do that. So... Um, you know, I, uh, I think that's a fun, interesting topic that we might might poke at a little bit as well. But um, so let's start with that that thing of the role of the platform in setting your overall data culture and how people interact with data, especially you're in um, kind of a roll up organization, right? Or an organization that constantly is is bringing in new uh, companies. And so how do you think about working to set a a the right example via the data platform for how everybody should work with data. 
Yeah, well, it's a it's a huge question, um, um, and it's basically the thing that uh, that I'm that I'm that I'm continuously thinking about. How do I, with my my limited perspective and the, the things that I have, just simply putting tools out into the world, and maybe with some best practices, and maybe I can give an internal talk or something like that. How do I, from that perspective, impact this global organization? Um, and it's it's obviously really hard. I don't have a, 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 a I don't I can't just tell people you must do this, but then culture isn't built that way, right? If a CTO comes up and says you must build data products, you don't automatically get ownership. You don't automatically get high quality data. You don't automatically get data products that are that represent the business. You just get people um, doing what they're doing what they're told. So so I think the 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 data platform can can sort of take. I want to say take the high road a little bit, take the, 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 the perspective of this is the way you're supposed to do it. This is the way that, uh, uh and we'll help you do it right. Um, and, uh, also allow people to, to sometimes not do it right. <laughs> um, that's the, that, that's the nature of our, the nature of our business. But I think the, 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 the key is to find a way to represent what is the best practice through the, through the, through the tools. So. I can I can give a few examples. So on the um, on the data consumption side, so we're we're talking about analysts or maybe machine learning engineers. These these kind of people, they're they're consuming data. How do we, you know, we can do simple things with the platform by simply making it available to everybody in the company. You know, that's a signal to the company to the to these people that they can use data for their jobs and that they should use data for their jobs. They, they think of the of the alternative, which is. Data is only available to analysts who who have the you know the stamp on their on their job profile that yes you're allowed to use data. That's just a signal to say you shouldn't be doing this, and it's a rarefied skill to be dealing with that. So just the choice of enabling self service um, within the data platform sets a signal and can impact um, the culture, but it's not sufficient, right? It's it's definitely necessary to do that, but it's not sufficient. So you have to find other ways to kind of nudge people along. On the um, on the data production side, um, I think a lot about how do I impact and instill the culture of uh, of real data ownership, real data product ownership, and you can do simple things within the platform like simply make it you know if you have a data product and has a YAML file that defines what it is, have a field a required field that says owner. Okay, that's a that's a nudge to say all data must be owned, and and seeing that there triggers in in the the person producing that data oh who's the owner of this what does ownership mean how do i who what do i put in there um and it it, it can trigger a, a conversation and and perhaps a little bit of reflection that oh this data isn't owned <laughs> i don't want to take responsibility for this data um but then the question is who who is and i think that those are the foundations of sort of bringing a little bit of reflection into this to to, to build um, um, some, some cultural elements. So to summarize all of that, I think you only have a few little things. You just have little decisions that you make in the products, the data platform products that you offer, simple nudges that push people in a certain direction. If done right and consistently and sort of reinforced over time, I think those can ultimately impact uh, the, the, the culture of the organization, the data culture. Yeah, I think that all makes sense. I think a lot of what you're talking about there is also inviting people to the table. I, I have this um, problem with a lot of folks on on LinkedIn. I'm not the most eloquent or 
erudite, I think is the word. Uh, I, I, I don't use my language all that well, which is probably why I have a podcast and that I can be a little bit more chaotic and explain what I mean. But they push back and say, no, you must be perfect in your language when you're posting on LinkedIn. And it's like, no, I'm here to have a conversation. I'm not here to proclaim from on high. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. You know, the, what I say about them is that they're gatekeeping, right? They're making it so that people feel intimidated to do, to post about their data work and things that they're doing. And, you know, I'm very, very much against gatekeeping. And that's kind of, you're doing little things to invite people in. And then you're giving them the, like you said, those little nudges to think about, okay, how do I do this right? And if I don't know what this means, then I've got a, a pathway to even talk to somebody about it and be like, oh, okay, like how would I do this? And I think those little, those little pathways that make it easy for people to feel like they're not the dumb one and that they're not, um, that they're, uh, that the, that the person on the other side isn't going to be frustrated with them that they're asking is so important because I think that's people are scared of data and you know whether it's going to take their job or they're scared of oh I'm not a, a statistics person so um so we're we're looking at how do you actually tease out what people actually want and need from the platform as well you're you're talking about kind of creating a platform that's going to push people to do the right things but also, how do you have those conversations to understand what they actually need? How do you how do you make sure that you're building the things that they and the difference between want and need? If you want to get into that, we we don't have to, but that's that's always a fun conversation. Absolutely, you know, there, there's this whole field that deals with this. It's called product management, right? Um, and you know, we we use the term data product, um, but also data platform overall itself is a is a is a product. Um, so I, I think, you know, to do this properly, you really need somebody on embedded in the data platform team who is a product manager or, or behaves like a product manager. So their, their job is, is literally to understand the needs of their users and to the needs and wants, um, and, and, and to help with, uh, you know, rollout plans and sort of go to market and all, all that kind of stuff, internal go to market, right? When you launch a new feature, you shouldn't think of it being any different because you're within the company. Uh, if the company is is large enough, or even if it's not very large, you're still asking somebody to take over something. You're still you're still going out there. You need to advocate and and, and to make people want to use this thing. So I think the a, a big part of your question is, hey, just read a product management book and then do what they do what they do. The data uh, a data platform is not special. It's not different than um, than, a, than a normal platform or or any other in, in internal tool um, that, that that people use. Uh, you know, like GitHub um, is, you could say, is sort of part of an internal platform um, toolkit. They are going out and asking engineers what what do they need, what what uh, what what current problems do they have, what is the yeah, how can they how can they add more and more value. If, if we look at data engineers as being the analogous uh, um, um, audience there, we have to go out and say, what is the part of your job that's currently hard? How are you struggling? What is the, what is the value that you're leaving on the table by, by not doing these things? Um, and then we build into the product specific features that can help alleviate that pain. And then hopefully they're very happy in the, in the, in the end when we offer, actually offer something that, that, that does do that. Um, if the, the platform does nothing other than annoy its users, 
<laughs> uh, there's the, which, which happens a lot, right? It's like, okay, we're migrating to this new service. We're doing this. You're not really acting like a platform. You're acting like a, an IT service organization, um, which is, which is something a little bit different, um, quite a bit different. Um, and I think is something that we need to evolve from the, the simple, you know, thing that you need to ask yourself is, could you make a startup around what you're building? And could you sell this to somebody? If you would have a hard time doing that, well, then you probably would have a hard time convincing your internal users that you're doing a good job. Yeah, I like that approach because exactly as you said, product, product management, like, and prioritization, right? That's the other thing of product management of, oh, we want to do these 17 things. Okay, how do we think about rolling that out? How do we talk to people? What's actually necessary and when? But yeah, I think um, that data as a product thinking People think that that's data products, and it's like no, no, no. It's it's applying actual product management thinking to the entire life cycle around data, and that's including sourcing data. That's including how do you think about um, going and finding new data products that you should create, how, all the, of those things. So um, I, I always love it when people talk product management in, in data. But um, so. We were also looking at, at finding, you know, this is something in, in product management, exactly as you were saying, hey, we're doing this huge migration versus gentle changes and, and that kind of gentle migration uh, around different things. So how are you looking to find these points of change that actually provide significant leverage, right? Because part of, of what we're trying to do in data um, with Data Mesh is be able to fail fast and and change and things like that instead of make huge bets. Um, but there's even that on on the platform side too. It's not just the actual data products that we're trying to evolve. So how do you think about figuring out where, you know, I mean, are you measuring very, very specific things and going, okay, we're measuring how long it takes for people to do these 10 different things. And so we're, we're removing the friction. Are you going and doing like a ton of user interviews? Like, how are you teasing out where those would be and then implementing those. Yeah, it's, um, I would say the, the, the approach here um, is a little bit between iterative development. So you know what problems they are and you're just trying to find solutions to sort of chip away at that versus something a little bit bigger, something like version two of your, of your, of your, of your software that takes a completely different, um, takes a, a, a completely different approach. Now, just talking to you, to your users and asking them what they, what they need, that's sort of the iterative development, right? You're sort of, it's, it, you're, you're going to eventually reach a local maxima. You're climbing the little mountain, but hopefully when you get to the top of the mountain, you realize that there's a much bigger mountain over there that you can, if you do things a little bit differently, um, or maybe uh, wildly differently, um, you could actually achieve something much greater. I, I don't know. Um, maybe if we're talking about, um, Productivity of analysts, um, you know, completely switching to a to a different uh, modality of of usage. I don't know, like a, I'm trying to think of an example, like maybe if your whole ecosystem is built around SQL, and then you introduce notebooks. Now, I'm not suggesting you do this, but just as as an example of the the uh, type of big change. It's like okay, we're going to be a notebook first organization, and everybody's going to learn Spark and all, all this kind of all this kind of stuff. They, um, um, that would be a drastic change that somebody has to have a vision behind it, right? Like nobody is just going to accept that immediately. You have to build up a vision and, and sort of go for it. <laughs> you have to convince somebody that it's worth, that this is a, this is, this is a bet. 
So I think a, a, a big part of, uh, you know, maybe if we go back to the product management profession, I think more junior product managers are, are they, they learn the skill of iterating and building backlogs and listening to the users and, and just kind of scrum style, just ch chipping away at, at, at this kind of thing. As they get more and more advanced, they realize that that's not the whole picture. They also have to take a step back and make larger, longer term strategic choices about their, about their product. So this same approach, I think, applies to data platforms. Um, and sometimes you have to, maybe you even have to split the team and say, okay, you're working on the, the current version, and then there's a new way of doing this um, um, where there's a, there's a different team doing that. Yeah. Data is not that different. Um, it's not that massively, massively different. But I think a lot of teams switching to a more data mesh style of, uh, of, of or, or organizing the data teams kind of fall into this, right? There's a traditional way of doing it, and then there's the more decentralized responsibility way of, way of doing it. That takes some vision, right? That's not an iterative um, development. It really takes somebody to make a bet. Um, and uh, you don't, you, you, the only way to know if that bet will be successful is, is to do it. But you can um, really understand the needs of the users, understands what, what other companies have, have, have done, what has succeeded and what has failed and gain more confidence um, in, in doing that. So I think it's, yeah, um, you have to judge where you are as an organization, whether or not you're, you're willing to make a big bet like that, but you should also not, uh, not, not shy away from that kind of thing. Otherwise you just end up, we'd all still be in, on Oracle or something if we didn't make any big bets and change the technology, for example. Yeah. Well, and I think what you said there as well was make big bets when it's required, but make small bets when it's not like, why go, why swing for the fences every single time if you're going to do these huge, huge changes versus this iterative change and something you, that was kind of underlying in a lot of what you were saying, which was, um, at least I, I keep saying that platform is plural when it comes to data mesh and people think of this being this huge monolithic thing and the users don't care. You're, you're, you you want to encapsulate services and provide services to them. Like that's, that's how the software products work. And so you're giving them services that let them leverage capabilities, but they don't care really how the sausage is made under the, under the sheets. So, um, well, hopefully nobody's making sausages under their sheets. That, that would probably be a, a big mess, but, um, I like that, but that you're also saying, Hey, if you're doing this, trying to slowly iterate into it, it's going to be such a long road that it's going to be very hard. And so like you have to do that gut check a little bit of, are we willing to make this bet? I think that's an important kind of way to pull somebody up and go, Hey, like if you're not willing to make a big bet that this is going to be some new way that you're going to do things, is anything really going to change? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, um, eventually you're going to have to make a big bet. There, there's no, there's no question. We, we can't, the world, uh, the, the te technological world, especially doesn't just slowly increase over time. It's, it increases until it, uh, until it plateaus. And then there's something new, something amazing, something, something that's, that's sort of completely different that goes in, on, on a, in a, in a different direction. So, you know, we, we can take an example from, from, uh, today, probably in the news, there's probably something about generative AI. Right. Um, and, and for years and years we were doing, you know, machine learning, we were, we were building, I've been involved in building uh, platforms from, for, for machine learning. And it there was always this, this question, 
how do we get the engineering teams, like the real software engineering teams, to build their own models? And we just couldn't get it done because it was just too complicated. Now, I find that uh, within our org anyways, it's mostly the engineering teams that want to use these large language models, bypassing the data scientists and the machine learning engineers. They just want to integrate directly with, 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 with OpenAI and they, they're like, I can do it. It's fine. They're probably going to massively fail in some instances, but they've, uh, this new technology has, has sort of uh, enabled them to, to, to go beyond, uh, to, to sort of take on this, this, this new role within their, within, within their team. Uh, which, which I think is is really nice to see, because um, I, I definitely saw this this plateau, and it was like we just couldn't crack that. We couldn't find a way to make it easy for um, um, regular regular software engineers. Sorry, I'm putting that in quotes, um, but software engineers that are not um, um, versed in machine learning to really do anything substantial. Now, perhaps they will. Yeah. Well, that, that whole, for me, the citizen data scientist was always a bad idea, simply because data science is so, so complex. But if we do have a way to do it, and, you know, the software engineers can implement something, and then you can have some checks of somebody coming in and going, is this sane? I think that's uh, a really interesting scale uh, challenge around, or a really interesting place where you could generate a lot of, of incremental value, if it can go well. But it's also... Uh, it's also pretty easy to see that not going quite so well. <laughs> so, but you, you can also say within the within the data engineering space um, that tools like DBT have enabled a completely different um, rule to, to to start to model their own data. Now, there's also huge problems with that. Um, I, I think many of us many of us know about that. Um, um, but there's no denying that it's it's sort of brought that out in the open and and made this less of a rarefied skill um, and and more something that that people if they put the work into it can 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 really do it on their own. And um, one thing that we were looking at it as well as talking about um, just briefly is kind of that uh, field of dreams of if you build it, they will come. If you build it, value will come. Um, how do you think about that on the platform side? Because, you know, um, data engineering folks love to play with amazing, cool tools. And so you want to play with the latest and greatest but it might not be the capabilities that that people want, and you know that's it's hard to uh, uh, kind of put those two together. Where you, you could tell your data engineers, "Hey, we're not going to do this uh, thing that's in um, the the beta program of ASF. We're not going to build our entire you know next gen platform around this uh, thing that we're not sure if it's even going to go anywhere." But how do you think about having those conversations? with your team so they're focused on building towards value and they're focused on pushing enable or pushing usage or um, enablement so people can use it more than they are pushing cool features yeah yeah, yeah. i think the, the the key here is just to have some really good kpis around why are you doing things um and i think i think platform teams have have been Notoriously bad at this uh, data platform, but also but also in engineering platform teams. Um, it's just really hard to measure developer productivity or data engineer productivity or analyst productivity. So they kind of don't. Um, and then you know I've I've had people come to me as me mentors and ask. I had this this question in a job interview as uh, like how do I measure the impact to the company of my data platform. <laughs> and they were like, I have no idea. I don't, uh, we don't have any impact. Um, and, and that was obviously very, 
um, unsatisfactory to the to the interviewer. It's like you, no, you. If I'm going to hire you, you have to have some impact in the organization, and I think it it is some measure of productivity. So how how easy is it for a data engineer to build um, the the next version of their of, of their data product or to to fix a data quality issue or whatever it is? And we just need to get really good at measuring those things. So. What we have, <laughs> we're also not very good at it, um, but we were trying. Uh, we're trying to find out these 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 things. Um, the best thing we have so far is simply surveys, asking people how happy are you with solving this kind of problem or this kind of problem. So you can say in general, how happy are you with the data platform, and you'll get wildly different different results. Um, but if you break it down, it's like okay, you have a task of discovering data or of uh, modifying the metadata or of, of uh, just writing and orchestrating your um, tra transformation job. And they uh, they can say, oh, okay, well, that's, I'm, I'm three out of five happy about that, right? And it's not it's not perfect, um, but it's certainly something that we can work towards improving over, over time, right? It gives us a bit of a baseline. We're currently at this right now. We have a feeling, an intuition that is not good enough. Okay, so the baseline that we're at right now is not good enough. Let's aim to get it a little bit higher. <clears throat> and then when we release new features, if they don't have any impact on the user satisfaction with doing these individual tasks, then it becomes quite obvious. Well, why did we do that? What did we what 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 came out of that? Why did we why did we save? Why did we why did we do that? Maybe the answer is okay, it allows us uh, it's less maintenance for us. Cool. Fine. Next time, please, uh, as you pitch this project, uh, please put it in those in those terms because that's an important outcome as well. Or maybe, oh, this is uh, um, there's less, it costs less to run the service. Great, that's fine as well. Or maybe it's like actually we're building this so that this um, um, end user, this specific um, subset of these of these users, are will be happier. Okay, how many are there? Oh, there are five of those in the company. <laughs> okay, how much time did they save? Um, but, but, but by doing this, oh, five, five minutes per month. Okay, is that really worth um, um, you know a two-month two implementation project um, to, to get that done? So by just by getting these KPIs out and having these conversations and forcing people to think about what is the the potential impact in terms of internal productivity, typically or cost or etc. Um, it I think it really helps just to expose them <laughs> to. The potential waste um, that is like doing things that that, that have no impact. Um, occasionally, we might have something like, "Oh, for some strategic reason, we have to move away from this vendor to that vendor." Okay, but there's usually an impact behind that strategic reason. Okay, we're moving vendors because it's we have a better deal, or because of some partnership agreement, or whatever, or some regulatory requirement. That's all fine, and that's the reason. Um, you just have to break it down into something. Just playing with something because it's fun, um, um, I guess, isn't isn't good enough anymore. And maybe it's just the the perhaps it's just the the phase that we are with the economy as it is right now. Right, every company is trying to to find a way to to be more efficient and to lower costs and to do more with with less people. So in the past, hey, you, you want to do this project? Just hire a bunch of people. Go 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 nuts. Now it's like, okay, you want to do that project? You have to justify it. You really have to say what is this going to do to the company, um, and just having that conversation, I think, helps a lot to remove, um, yeah, these uh, these projects that don't don't actually do much. Yeah, I think uh, 
so I, I was writing a, a book and then I realized on um, data mesh success metrics. And then I realized I needed to write the book on data mesh success factors before I did metrics because I was explaining the success factor for, you know, half of the book and, uh, you know, for each one of, of doing that. But yeah, those those metrics are so key. And, um, you know, had a recent episode uh, where we were talking about automation and automating away friction. But sometimes friction isn't bad, right? And so finding those those places where friction isn't the the enemy or, hey, this person's spending significant amount of time discovering data because they're data spelunking. They're going out there and finding awesome things and they're they're playing around with it versus, you know, and so you can measure how much time somebody's doing something in the platform. But, you know, exactly what you had to say of like, you have to get dig into it a little bit from a survey perspective. We want to pretend that we can measure everything in a qualitative way or quantitative way. And yet really qualitative is, is what's, which is frustrating because everything around data seems to be qualitative, even though it should be quantitative in, in or we feel it should be. We're just so used to dealing with quant quantitative data, right? Uh, we figure we should be able to have it too. Um, I've, I've said this many times to, to my different teams over the years in different companies. And it's like, we are the least metric driven team in the, in the whole company, right? Like why is the data team not the team that is driven by, by, by metrics? Now, my, my current team is much better than in the, in the past. <laughs> I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't say that about them. Um, um, they're definitely doing a, doing a very good job in this area, but in the past, yeah, it's like, oh, data is just something we do. It's a service, right? Uh, or something. It's just like a necessary evil. So just, we just have to do it. We don't have to measure it. Um, and I think that's, that's very wrong. One of the, the, the one of the, the best metrics I think that, that you should really be to be driving um, in a data mesh sort of architecture is the usage of the different data products, right? This is something that I think now is it's, it's more accepted, but just the idea that if you produce data, you're making visible to the producer of that data, who and how much is that data used for and for what, what uses this, this has a huge impact on how serious they take that uh, that data. If they think of it as exhaust that doesn't matter to anybody, then they're going to treat it with that with with that level of um, of, of priority. If they like this is this data go eventually goes into the report that the CEO sees, um, then they're they're probably going to get up in the middle of the night and fix it if they if they really need to. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know I've talked about about my uh, belief is that every single user should have to register their use case because then the producer actually knows what's being used and they may even be able to go, oh, you're doing this, like let's augment this to give you even more value or you're trying to accomplish this, let's change you from consuming this to this other thing. I think just those conversations really help. Yeah, it, it's a very powerful idea, just to a comment on that. Um, you think we do this with APIs, right? We almost always register, there's a, there's a token that's used with an API or we, we know who is using that API because we need to authenticate them a little bit. But the consequence of that is that we can track usage per per, per user, um, and I think APIs I, I, I strongly I often use as 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 the analogous uh, technology or paradigm to uh, data products within an organization when talking with software engineering teams. But how do I get them to understand the importance of this? It's like yeah, it's like an API, right? You have to you have to care for it, you have to version it, you have to operate it, um, and you have to track usage of it. Imagine you're building in this API that nobody is using. Well, turn it off, <laughs> right? Um, and and obviously uh, the the same thing applies to data products. Yeah, um, 
Jabak was was kind of talking about Postel's law as well with an API where you say, you know, um, be liberal in what you accept from others and be conservative in what you you kind of give to others or what you do because, you know, so that you're not doing breaking changes. And if you actually know what's going to break or or if you know that, hey, we're thinking about making this big, big change and you go and talk to everybody and they're like, oh, we're not using any of the things that are going to make a big change. Oh, well, then we shouldn't have been producing that anyway. Will you use the new stuff? And they're like, yeah. Oh, okay. You know, that those conversations rarely seem to happen. So I wanted to to talk about this uh, thing that's near and dear to my heart, to Schmack's heart, and, and I think yours, of how to look at data mesh through a lens of software engineering best practices. Like, why does this seem so hard? Is it just because people haven't really super, super recontextualized? I know Jamak has done a, a great job in her book, but it, you know, hey, let's recontextualize DDD for data. That could be an entire book. Let's recontextualize, you know, DevOps and CICD and things like that. You know, people talk data ops and it's like they're kind of different. And, uh, you know, it gets into this thing of um, how much does everybody need to, to have recontextualized? But um, how do you think about having that conversation with data people? You said you're coming from the software engineering side, so you've got a little bit of a different perspective. You know, is that something that you think is difficult to understand or is it just difficult to adapt to data because data is it, it simultaneously isn't very different and is very different yeah yeah it, it's it's a, it's a tough one i've 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 had great successes and great failures in in in, in discussing these 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 terms with uh, with, with data people um, to the point where i'm i'm trying to actually figure out what backgrounds <laughs> make good team members uh and i actually asked data engineers when uh, in in interviews um, you know are you are you a software engineer who who does data or are you a data engineer who does to, who writes some software um and it's kind of 50 50 when, when people come you know like where did you start um i don't find that actually the best indicator uh, <laughs> that they that they'll get it or not um but it's a good indicator that they'll that they'll they'll, they'll pull from software engineering practices uh, the, the people that come from a data world will pull from the database administration practices like data, data modeling and all that kind of stuff that software engineers basically have no, no, no understanding of. So I think both sides bring their own background um, and, and, and they're both uh, very useful to have in a team. When I'm actually trying to communicate these ideas um, to data people, well, they get it actually. It, 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 it's very, very, um, um, not very often do data engineers or, or data analysts not get the concepts of, of data mesh. It's, it's more like when they, in the overall ecosystem, synchronizing and integrating the, the roles of the software engineers in their, in their teams and the responsibilities that they have, and then sort of mapping that to the data mesh world, I, I find is, is never really maps correctly. And maybe it's just because we use, in this re, re, recontextualization, we use different terms. Um, and I think that that was a good <laughs> approach to sort of get the ideas out there, perhaps for data people, but it wasn't so great to tr to interpret these ideas for um, software engineering people. Um, the, you know, I, I think Jamak does use all these terms in her book, but they're not the ones that are, that have been exposed in the, in externally. Right. Um, so I, I don't know what the answer is, but it, I seem to get through to software people only once I tell them that, okay, this ownership is just like, of a, a, a data product is just like ownership of a, of a, of a microservice. Um, and 
And um, of course, you would have product management on a, on a on a service, even a backend service. You would you would have product management on that. Why not on a, on on the data side? And they argue with me. They're like, no, well, it's different. <laughs> and, then, and then if you if you dig dig deep, and it was like, why is it different? The answer is usually because the backend system has priority over the data, um, and I think that's actually the big the big argument why they get it, but they don't actually implement anything. They don't actually do anything because they don't believe that it's as important as their real job, right? Um, and that's uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, so I think a lot of what I, I I need to do is convince them how important these things are. Going back to previous comments about showing them how uh, how how the data is used within the organization and what it actually powers. So we 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 have a, a very useful um, situation um, at, at Delivery Hero, where one of our, our most important data sources, which is our uh, user behavior tracking, so basically like Google Analytics, but we have an internal system that does this. This has not traditionally been thought of as valuable data, <clears throat> right? It, it powers decisions, and if it's a bit wrong, who cares? You know, the A/B test still kind of plays out in the end. It's it's fine. We're now using this data for um, um, many different products uh, within ad tech. Um, so when an advertisement is viewed, we use the same system that says, okay, somebody logged into the app, somebody seen, it, seen an ad. This then is, is directly used for um, uh, uh, charging the, the customer that that, that that advertisement was billed or, or was, was displayed or was clicked on. Um, so data quality now within this user behavior tracking system equals money in the end. And now everybody gets it. Now everybody is like, of course, this is the most important project in the whole company. But do this, do this, do this. Make it really, really great. Only because I could point to that thing coming out the other end that is real money. Right? Before that, it was too too loose. It was too, okay, it's quality of decision making or something like that that you couldn't grasp. Money, of course, everybody grasps. And I think it's interesting one thing that you said in there was talking to software engineers as well about prioritization and how this has priority. You know, I think some people have been lucky enough to be able to have those people's KPIs re rearranged. And so then it's like, hey, no, this is a first first class concern as much as the uh, the systems that you're doing. But I don't think that's the case for most, for most uh, organizations. And I don't know that it will be um, for quite some time. So I think that's an interesting conversation people can have. But yeah, you know, it's it's a difficult one, and it's uh, you know people kind of want this. How do I apply it to my organization? It's like, well, it depends, and nobody likes that answer. But um, yeah, no, I I think a lot of what you're talking about is just spending the time with people to to get them to understand instead of kind of talking at them, talk with them, and have those those kind of genuine conversations. Um, is is there anything more that you'd say that that really uh, helps you there, or do we kind of wrap that up pretty well. I think we wrap it up. Okay. Um, so we were also going to talk about reliability and resilience practices, especially around data incidents and how do we think about prioritization? Because uh, for me, this is, is, you know, I was embedded in an SRE org, right? So for people who don't know, site reliability engineering. And that was about the entire suite of all of our offerings because you know we had one cloud offering so it wasn't super super complicated in, in that we had you know 20 different products that we were offering but you know there were many different features within the product but uh 
when we were thinking about site reliability, it was what of these services matter and how, and if there's a prior, if there's an incident on this, what would be the the things that might be um, that might be affected downstream, or what might cause this upstream, and understanding that whole thing, and not just lineage, but like how do these things interact with each other, even though you might not know like in the code how they interact with each other but you know for some reason this thing when this thing gets into trouble it also puts this thing into trouble and nobody really knows 100% why but it just is the case and like what matters when and why but you know people have talked to me about this with observability that the second they they get observability it's like oh well now i'm getting 8 million alerts which of these matter you know, how do I figure out what to, to dig into? And, you know, I, I know the observability companies are trying to do little things there, but it's still pretty, pretty early. So I'd love to hear about how you think about that prioritization so that it's actually um, feasible and that, that you can actually do what you need to get done. Yeah. I could talk about sort of the general delivery hero approach to incident management and, and all of this. Um and how I would like, now it doesn't right now, but how I would like um, um, data incidents to in integrate into that process. So at Delivery Hero, we have uh, just, you know, we have a central policy. This is, this is how we do things. Um, and we distinguish between an anomaly. So that's an alert that, that happens within, within Datadog or something else. Somebody gets called in the middle of the night. Something is wrong, right? And that anomaly needs to get elevated and escalated or whatever the term is to an incident. Um, a human has to make that choice. So they basically look at it. Is this reasonable? Is this, uh, or like, is this real? Um, what is the actual impact here? Is it just, okay, that service went down and then it automatically restarted. Okay. No big deal. Um, or is it, is it something much more substantial than that? Um, and, and really what is the, at first glance, what is the impact to the organization? And then it goes into the, the formal incident management process where you have, you know, different severity levels. If it's a severity level one, well then, you know, everybody gets called and you have this very, very intense, um, um, process where you try to solve it as, as early as possible. Um, so that works really well. Um, and you know, we, we've, we've tweaked that over the years, uh, because this stuff matters and you really have to do it, do it properly. So the, the answer to your question around how do you get rid of the noise? is you basically let the local teams that are responsible for the service deal with that noise themselves and a human has to move it to the next level. So anything that becomes an incident almost always is an incident and is something um, that is that is super important. And then it moves into this other stage <laughs> of, of, of existence where, okay, now it's serious. Um, as a consequence to, to an incident, once it's, once it's resolved, then you do a post-mortem and you talk about it and you figure out what the action items are and you try to you know, distill learnings, general learnings that can be applied in, in other places. And we have a weekly meeting to go through the most important of, of, these, of these incidents to learn from them and disseminate that, that knowledge. Now, when a data incident happens, when data is lost or data doesn't, doesn't come through or there's, there's literally um, some sort of bug in the, in the, in the, the preparation of the data, um, historically, none of that happened right? <laughs> it was just the local team noticed, made some fixes. Nobody was, um, um, nobody was notified. There was no escalation to a formal process. There was no, um, 
um, prioritization put on that. And there was certainly, uh, in some cases there was, but there was no requirement of a postmortem and sharing of the learnings after that. Um, that last part is like, <laughs> is the, 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 the cherry on the top of all this that makes this uh, a really very valuable pr process to go through. Solving the incident as quickly as possible and then getting the learnings out of it so it doesn't happen again. Now, all of that, all of what I said, has nothing to do with backend systems or, or anything it can, it can apply to Google Drive or, 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 or any, anything like that. It can apply to the, 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 the front door <laughs> is locked and people can't get, can't get into the building. Data incidents absolutely fall, can, can fall into the same process and should. The trick is, how do you decide what the prioritization of this, of this issue is? What is the, where does it fit into that, in, 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 into that hierarchy and how much attention do you, do you put on that? Um, that has not been in the past, hasn't been solved because the, the, the criteria was set in how much money did we lose the company or how many orders were lost, uh, et cetera, at different, different levels. Data loss is like, well, actually, aside from the ad tech thing that I just mentioned before, it, it's like, okay, it didn't cost us any money. Therefore, it's not an incident. Then why is the CEO breathing down our breathing down our neck and saying this has to be fixed? Obviously, there's a mismatch between our understanding of the prioritization and what is an incident, and 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 what what we currently have. So we have to find some way to inject things things in there. So that's something that I'm doing right right now with my team, trying to find a a, a way to describe a data event that puts it into the same framework, and then it just gets executed like everything else, where where the the postmortem is run. Um, uh, that the learnings are disseminated, um, et cetera, because I think it's all there. We don't have to create a separate um, um, a data instant product or process, sorry. It's, we use the one that already exists. It's really good. Why not just, uh, why, why not just use it? Um, so I, I think I, I, I lean heavily on existing software engineering practices um, um, to, to get this stuff done. Just have to translate it slightly at the beginning. Yeah, I think that just keeps coming up more and more of like, we just like, people have figured out how to do this. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? Like, please stop, uh, you know, I, I think on the contract side, the data contract side, we have to go through some pain to figure out how data contracts work. But at the same point, API contracts are a thing. And so, you know, we've seen the evolution and everybody's locking schema and things like that. And it's like, we, we've gone through that on the API side and it didn't go so well. So why are we starting from that? That's uh, anyway, I, I don't have the solution. I just have the frustration. So, you know, I, I can just be seen as, as kind of that uh, detractor, but not um, really somebody that's helping us to get to the right thing. But, um, but yeah, it just keeps coming back to, we've learned how to do this and we're trying to do it in data. So why don't we just take as much as we can from those things and change the bits that we do, that we do need to take. So um, I, I wanted to wrap up around this this question that you had asked me, you know, which was how do we get people to care about what they should care about, right? When we're talking about data, how do we get people, you know, whether that's producer, whether that's consumer, whether that's kind of third party person, you know, almost like that that CEO or those execs that aren't typically the direct consumer of of things. How do we get people to focus on what matters when when we're talking about data. Yes, we translate it into language related to things they do care about. Um, you know, that's, we went through the discussion around um, software engineers and communicating with them. It's 
putting this into their into their language and showing them by analogy something you care about is just like this therefore you should also also care with care about this um but i think it's a bit bigger of a question than than just that um because of this uh this issue around what is the benefit to the company about having i don't know high quality data that's that's consistently available um Hey, I don't know. <laughs> How do you get people to care about uh, this this stuff that has no measurable impact? It has an impact intuitively. It has an impact, um, but it's very difficult to measure. Um, yeah, I don't have an answer, and I really wish I did. Um, but I think that's the that's the 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 main thing that a lot of us uh, are 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 struggling with. You don't have an MMW, a mesh magic wand um, that you can just <laughs> wave at this, and it just works. Yeah, I think. Well, and I think that whole thing of, you know, grant me the serenity to accept what I can't change, um, the strength to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. I think that comes through a lot in um, a lot of these conversations because it's very much like, hey, you're you're going to have these challenges, like just kind of get ready for it. And uh, communication is never as crisp as we'd like, but that doesn't mean we can shy away from it. So. Um, so we talked about a whole heck of a lot of different things here. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to, or any way you wanted to kind of wrap up the, uh, content of the episode? I would like to go back to the beginning. Um, and just like the, the idea of culture, um, I think is a, is a really, is a really big one. And I think it, it went through a few different parts of what you, of, of, of what we talked together uh, today. It's, you know, getting people to, to care about things they should care about is really how do we instill this in the in the culture and get them to care about it without thinking about it right that's what that's what culture is so i i guess uh the the only thing that i have maybe a final parting words um is that working on the culture is you know work that we should be doing um it is it is important work just setting out the technology just setting out just building the teams um, all that might actually be secondary to building a culture within the organization. And we don't have good, good skills and experience doing that, but perhaps we need to build it. Yeah. I, I've been having more and more conversations around transformation. It's like how much of the transformation has to be on the data team versus everybody else. And it seems like we're putting way too much of the org transfer or transformation on the data team, which is, shouldn't really be there their uh their job so it it's a very very deep and uh squishy and perilous topic <laughs> um so i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you where's the best place uh, anything specific you'd like them to follow up about? um linkedin is the place um for sure that's really the only social network that i that i use regularly i i had a twitter account and i deleted it um <laughs> not even recently um, but I think a, a few of us are doing that. Um, I'd love to talk about any of this stuff, um, especially data platforms, you know, sort of how, how data platforms, um, can help, uh, set the culture of, of an organization, how data platforms are, are, are built, how, um, yeah, um, all, all, all aspects of that, um, are certainly very, very interesting to me. So please feel free to reach out. Awesome. And we'll drop links to, or we'll drop a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes to make it easy for folks. But, uh, Sean, thank you so much for taking this time here today with me. And as well, thank you everyone out there for taking the time to listen. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. 
I'd again like to thank my guest today, Sean Gustafson, Director of the Data Platform at Delivery Hero. You can find a link to this LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.